Welcome back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer coming to you from Schaefer Vineyards in the beautiful Napa Valley. Thanks for joining us. So glad you could be here. Today we are talking to a guest whose winery goes way, way back in history here in Napa and whose family has been a big part of the industry for a long time. We have more than 100 years of great stories to cover, so let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's Doug Schaefer for another episode of The Taste. Uh, today, welcoming a fellow Napa Valley vintner with a very similar story to mine. Uh, he worked with his parents who founded a family winery and he took over the reins. Um, the CEO and president of the famous Schrams, Schramsburg Winery, Hugh Davies. Welcome, Hugh. Doug, great to be with you today. Um, and uh, here in Napa Valley on a, on a you know, kind of a pleasant July day. It's beautiful out there. And I was thinking about you last night, um, trying to think about the first time we met. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the first time we met was probably playing City League basketball at the high school on a Sunday night, but way back when. Is that, is Didn't that you, right? you had like the contraption on your knee that, <laughs> you know, if you ran into the guy, you might actually bang your own knee because it had, you know, some knobby parts yeah, on it. Yeah, that, that like was, that. you know, I, I pretended I had knee injuries, but I just wore that on purpose because guys like you were a lot, <laughs> you were a lot faster than me. So when you no, drove by you me, could, I just kind of give you a little knock. You just give him a little <laughs> knee and it might actually slow the guy down. Like, hey, I want to hit that thing again. I remember that. Um, that actually, it's funny you brought that up. I remember I had it, I first started knee problems in high school basketball, and I had these old, horrible braces back then. And they were, yeah, there was metal sticking out. And I remember the ref stopped the game one time and said, you can't wear that. You're going to, you know, make people bleed. So they had to tape it all up, all the metal. There's a, a, side, there's a side note I haven't thought about in about 40 years. Anyway, um, glad you're back on the podcast. Uh, you, Schramsberg. Incredible story that goes back over 150 years. I think one of the oldest wineries in the valley. You know, and your family has built that legacy into something that's really amazing. A uh, lot to cover. There's you, your folks, and all those stories. But I think we have to go back to the 1860s, back when some guy named Jacob Schramm, who lived in St. Helena, got the idea to plant some vines and uh, go from there. So give us some of that history. Um the the Davies part of the story began in 1965, but as as you indicate, the the Schramsberg story goes back to 1862. Uh, one of the first wineries in Napa, uh, Jakob and Anna Schram, uh, wow. founded Schramsberg in <laughs> 1862, said to be the second bonded winery in Napa Valley. Uh, we know that Schram. Uh, or Shram, we, I, I grew up saying Shram, but he mm -hmm. uh, would have worked with um, Charles Krug uh, at Charles Krug, which started the year before. And as our understanding is that the two of them actually worked with Augustin Harazi, who's the Hungarian uh, winemaker over Buena Vista and Sonoma, said to be the first bonded winery, 1857. And so, uh, couple of German immigrants, you know, connected with a Hungarian. They, they started making a little bit of wine, Sonoma, that, that, that moved to, to Napa. Uh, and then, in Tram's case, up here onto what we think of today as the Diamond, into the Diamond Mountain District of Napa between St. Helena and Calistoga, up in the hills, uh, 
on the west side of the valley. We know that at a peak, SRAM was producing, you know, what we would think of today in terms of nine liter cases, but maybe 10,000 nine liter cases, 100,000 bottles, that type of thing. Um, it would have all been, we believe, made from fruit grown here on the, on the estate, if you will. The, uh, the family had a good run, and uh, unfortunately, it did come to an end for them and for the second generation of that family in the the teens prohibition was was looming and then there was this root laws phylloxera that kind of ended the party in that that earlier era which which must have been pretty uh pretty devastating for for people in in napa sonoma yeah because it it uh it definitely put a damper on the whole industry without a doubt and uh I remember being up there years ago, and you know, you guys, those you guys have those great caves, and those date right back that those date date back to the original owners, right, the Schramm family. Yeah, so the caves here, they're they're definitely a unique feature of this property, and and I, you know, as far as caves go, you know, there are there are definitely caves around, you know, wine country here in the North Bay, but these are are some of the more interesting caves. The the first, we believe. 12,000 square feet of underground caves were were dug with picks and shovels back in the 1800s which is amazing uh that they did that work the soil here is not soft (laughs) it is hard volcanic uh ash honestly the look and feel of the caves hasn't even changed that much over the subsequent 100 150 years uh, you still see the marks of the pixes and the you know the, the the axes that would have been used to you know peck away at the at the walls wow. and it's you know just like one little chink at a time boom uh, they would have uh, gotten it done um, so we've added on to those caves if you were to visit Transbury today you, you'd see more but uh, it is it is pretty unique that that aspect of it I remember as a kid just the the three the three caves you know there were two portals and then there was one side cave off to the side right um and they're mostly empty <laughs> was, you know, they're not empty anymore right uh and we've had to we had to dig more caves to put more bottles but uh once bought a time you know there was plenty of room for the uh the bikes and the skateboards yeah i was gonna say i bet you guys were running around riding bikes and skateboards yeah it makes sense there's Perfect. still a little bit of that but it's harder there there's uh yeah, there's just a little more activity probably than there once was um, as we've gradually grown and as the world has gotten bigger too, right? Right, right. And back in that day, they had a celebrity guest, uh, a famous author, Robert Louis Stevenson. And so you guys, you got some, Schramsberg got some, or the Schramm gang got some early early PR in his book. So that's, that is impressive, um, you know, for the, the RLS fans, but honestly, you know, you, you think all these years later, that would have helped them, uh, build their brand, you know, to, to, uh, you know, it's all well and good to make a fine wine, but <laughs> selling it, as you all know, <laughs> that's not necessarily, uh, easier than, uh, than making it. And so at that time, it must've been really difficult. Like no visitors would come uh there you know the 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 market for these fine california wines um well it didn't exist until people started to make it and and then uh would have uh, probably had to work pretty hard to, to get some attention around around the country around the world uh but when then a very famous author robert louis stevenson writes the silverado squatters 
Uh, ultimately, he became such a popular writer that that would have helped. I think it helped more like 10 years later. As it was actually 1880 that uh, he wrote Silverado Squatters and, and spent his time here in, in Calistoga and Napa and with that little time with the Shrams. And then uh, Treasure Island and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, those books came a little later more like I think 83, 4, 5, something like that, 1883, 84, 85. And then I think it was around 1890-ish that Stevenson actually dies. And so um, in those 1890s is my understanding is when when that that business kind of, for, for those that were doing it, you know, the Berengers, the Krugs, the the Shrums, et cetera, uh, it went pretty well. Well, yeah, that was, I've had some other folks on talk about that time period. Um, it's true, the late, 18, yeah, 1890s, that's when kind of, it was a, it was a pretty good wine boom here. This is, you know, pretty prior, good wine boom. Yeah, prior to Prohibition, it was really going. But thankfully, we, we're, we're still here, we're still making wine, and, and uh, it doesn't feel like we've missed too many beats. No, you haven't, and... Uh, since people are probably not going to run out and read that book, The Silverado Squatters by Stevenson, but he does, he does have a great description of uh, Napa, Napa's wines in that book. And it's just two words, and it's called bottled poetry. And, and, I mean, and the wine was bottled yeah, poetry. The wine was bottled poetry. <laughs> I mean, that was what he wrote back in the 1800s, and one could argue... You know, you could use that as a tagline for your own business today. I mean, it speaks volumes. It's pretty cool. Uh, it is approximately 100 pages, so it's a pretty quick read. It's interesting to to get a, a feel for what life might have been like at this stage, what, 140 years ago yeah. here, in, uh, here in our backyard. No, it's a good tip. It's a quick read. People should, if you're really into Napa Valley history, you guys should check that out. It's, um, you're right. We can have it delivered by drone. And um, there you go. So it's rolling, prohibition hits, winery shuts down, and then we jumped forward in time to your mom and dad, Jack and Jamie Davies. Where'd they come from? What's their story? How the <clears throat> heck did they get to the Napa Valley? Yeah, so um, if I remember correctly, didn't your dad, was he raised in the Midwest? Yeah, Chicago. Chicago. So my dad was born in Cincinnati. But really, he was only in Cincinnati for two years. The, the, so before he was aware of anything, his, his parents had moved to uh, Chicago. And so my dad was in Chicago up until about 37, uh, 1937, I'll say. And he was born in 23. And so, you know, kind of you know, early high school, mid-high school, his age his family, like some other families in the Midwest, uh, pick up and drive to California, wow. uh, drive to Southern California. Uh, it's crazy to think you could go to, uh, at, at this point, Beverly Hills, California, <laughs> and you could like buy a house, you know, it, right. it seemed like a you know, better opportunity than uh, what they might've had in, in, uh, in Chicago. And, and, you know, we, we could just pick up stakes and move out there and, and start over and, and afford to be able to do that. Granted, different time. Right. Um, so, so he would grow up in uh, what was Beverly Hills then, a little different than would be the Beverly Hills today. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and then was a World War II vet, uh, then through the GI Bill, went to Stanford. It's crazy. My dad went to Stanford and had a Harvard MBA. Um, I'm sure there are a few, few people out there with those stripes, but uh, yeah, well-educated guy, mm-hmm. and then ended up in San Francisco. He was working for um, a business consulting firm, uh, McKinsey, which is pretty well known and regarded, still existing, you know, with with kind of international uh, offices, but including San Francisco as a base, and so that's what he was up to. Um, my mom, meanwhile, was born, and raised in Pasadena, so as a kid, both both sets of my grandparents, you know, down in Southern California, and so my mom, she goes to UC Berkeley, uh, and then in the late fifties, fifty nine, at this point, she is. Uh, up and running with a gallery she and a friend out of out of berkeley started selling paintings of uh you know young uh you know california painters so she's on broadway with her gallery kind of more you know towards the you know north beach uh you know, a little bit in the late 50s beatnik era and my dad meanwhile is on montgomery street um you know, as the business consultant and their paths cross, they married six months after they met, they just hit it off. And then in their young married life, started a family and and came up with this idea that, that, uh, they wanted to do their own business and that they had friends that were dabbling a little bit with wine, a little bit with restaurant activity, uh, that, that piqued their interest. They invested in a, a winery called Martin Ray Vineyards. Uh, and then, couple years into that by 65 they had uh they had crafted their own you know their own plan and that was to make a sparkling wine traditional method you're going to use chardonnay we're going to use pinot noir we're going to do it like they do in the champagne district of france um they had scoped out you know places in napa sonoma etc and and there were numbers you know these older winery properties that that it were just kind of hanging around that hadn't been active for a good long time right you know 50 50 years had passed between the shram period and then we'll say the davies period but anyhow they were led to this property shramsburg by a realtor uh ned smith uh the caves hey i got a place for you we, <laughs> there's a place up uh, towards calistoga it's got these old caves and and that'd be great like if you want to do the bottle from a sparkling wine you could stick the bottle it's like in champagne right but here in, in california right and they saw this place and and that, that was it you know the, the hook was set uh and here we are 57 years later still still going i gotta ask you any idea i'm sure you probably shared with you at some point why he went sparkling because you know at that time you know table wine was just starting to kind of get going you know in the 60s and 70s again and so you know even taking it further out there with sparkling wine to your typical you know american consumer who's probably not really even sure what wine is sparkling did he have a a, a wild idea was it to be different um was there just a love of champagne from france any idea yeah, no, the a great question and 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 you know the answer is uh is is a bit multifaceted but um first and foremost they like sparkling wine. They 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 enjoyed the you know kind of the fine champagne that they had had a chance to taste and be exposed to again living in San Francisco, you know, a little little bit of exposure at least in their circles to the you know the fine wine and cuisine and so they 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 were bitten by the bug. So they they liked the style. 
but they also like the idea of doing something that nobody else was yet doing. Uh, yeah. You know, I can hear my dad talking about the niche, you know, and again, he was, he was a marketing consultant. And, and so in his mind, you know, if, if they could carve out a unique niche, um, you know, that they could live in that niche, like future generations could live in that niche. You know, if we were the first to do something that, that, that might ultimately resonate. But to your point there, while there wasn't much of a market for, for wine in general, uh, most American households just, just didn't, didn't do wine, right? It it wasn't something that, that happened. My parents, uh, didn't come from families where people drank wine around the dinner table. That, that didn't happen. Um, but they, they got the bug and then they, they thought, wow, we could, we could go for it. We could be the first people to really do the, the bottle fermented sparkling wine. And then once they saw this place, you know, I, I think the pieces just really came together around that idea for them. They were encouraged by people they met. Folks like Andre Chalachev would have been a, a, around. Uh, he was, uh, you know, kind of an early uh, c- consultant, if you will, a little bit on the project. His son Dimitri, uh, you know, worked really more formally with my parents for for a number of years in the early going. Um, the, the Mondavi brothers, you know, initially at Charles Krug, later Robert would, would move on. But that was another, uh, you know, c- connection that they made uh, early as, as they were, you know, you know, kind of planting the seeds to get this thing going. The folks at UC Davis, my parents give them a lot of credit for helping them figure out how to... Um, how to how to do it? How do you make this stuff? Right, right, right. You, right. What what's this? Way? We got to get the yeast going, yeah. and then we got to <laughs> we got to put some sugar in the wine once we've made it, yeah. and then it's got to go to a bottle. And how do we how do we get it so that it actually finishes the fermentation? <laughs> and how do we get every bottle to taste you know pretty much the same too? That's a you know we need to be consistent, right? Yeah. Um, we've gotten better at this. I will say that <laughs> over fifty seven years, but yeah, it would have it would have uh, it would have been kind of crazy uh to to do yeah uh, i really i mean i've got a ton of respect for for not just what my parents would have have done but you know that that er- the earlier era of winemaker because they they were um they were starting from scratch right right, I mean, they, right. They really they, they were starting from scratch no the learning curve was big i mean uh i was here pretty early on with dad and you know he was getting good help from neighbors and stuff but man you know even the folks who were like the pros were still kind of green because um, it's just, how, yeah. do, how, how do you do it? I mean, you know, I remember, you know, not just me, some of my peers and in the early 80s, you know, we're just trying to make decent wine that wasn't going to blow up in the bottle. You know, and that's not even a thought these days. I mean, we've got, not that we have it down, no. but, you know, we have it down compared to 30, 40 years ago. So, you know, back Absolutely. then it was even the same thing. But, you know, I, I didn't know your dad well, but I, I had, I ran him to a few times, um, but he was one sharp guy, and your mom, too, delightful. But um, I figured he was doing that whole, uh, let's grab a niche and, and make it ours with uh, doing the sparkling wine. So kudos, kudos, kudos. So they come up here. They've got two, two you got two brothers. You were born. When were you born? I was born in 65, September 65. Okay. Uh, so they, I was born after that first harvest, um, and they would have been up here. Frankly, my mom was pregnant when they moved with me, when they moved into the house and, you know, formally started the, the, the effort. Um, 
So and you, they so brought I, in some part. I gotta go interrupt you. So you're like, I think you're the only true Napa Valley person I've had on this show. You're the true Napa Valley native man. We're all born, the rest of us are all born outsiders. And <laughs> it is crazy if you think about it, and I sometimes do. Um, so mom and dad, you know, they they leave the hospital to take me home, and they they bring me to the house where I still live crazy right wow. uh, so i'm i'm now 56 living in the house that was you know really the first house that i ever knew um go. i have moved away and done a few things not for not for too long <laughs> but yeah life's good i like it here no it must have been crazy for your your folks i mean starting it out you got three three little kids um how did they did they ever talk much about it? was it just crazy or they just did it and uh I'm assuming it wasn't a burden. It was more of a passion is, is what I'm guessing. For them? Yeah. yeah, they 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 loved every minute of it. I would say they probably didn't love every minute of raising the three boys. <laughs> <laughs> so I should qualify uh, the statement. Um, and I can hear them talking about the teenage years being particularly challenging, especially when all three of us were teenagers. By the time Bill turned 20, I think it started to get a little better. Um, but yeah, we're four years apart, four boys. So I think, you know, the year when I'm 15, my brother John's 17, and my brother Bill's 19. Yeah, that's trouble. <laughs> that's, that's trouble right yeah, there. Yeah, that's trouble. That was probably trouble right there, yeah. <laughs> I think what they really, really loved, and, and maybe they 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 thought it was going to happen like this. I don't know. But they they loved the camaraderie uh, that, honestly, I, I believe still exists. Here you and I are sitting here talking about you know, how our parents made wine you know, once upon a time, and, and that's what we still do. Um, it's um, they, they loved being part of this community, uh, they loved, uh, working with other members of the community and I'll extend it beyond Napa, you know, the kind of the California you know, wine community to, to build, uh, not only their individual brands, you know, their, 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 you know, to, you know, to build followings for their, their, their individual wine portfolios. But I feel like for, for that generation, maybe more than ours, or, or maybe we're still, we're still right there. I think to, to some extent, we're all still right there. We need, we need our wines to come from a region that's, that means something right. right. Uh, in order for, for, for all of us to, to really be successful in it. And, and I, there is a quote that my dad would always use. Um, that was a Robert Mondavi quote. Uh, he was, uh, he was he needed to get Chardonnay. My dad did to do the Blanc de Blanc. Right, so year one, nineteen sixty-five, we need Chardonnay because you can't make a Blanc de Blanc without Chardonnay. Right, um, that's the way they do it in Champagne. That's the way we're going to do it. And they're, they're at the time they're like two hundred acres of Chardonnay, the whole state. That's it. Uh, and Ooh. so it, he wanted Chardonnay. He finds some uh, uh, some Riesling. So that that's he's got a buddy who's got a a, a Spring Mountain vineyard with some Riesling on it. Riesling more planted than Chardonnay, as you all know, in 1965. And so, uh, but the suggestion was, you know, talk to the Mondavis down in Charles Krug. They, they, might, they might hook you up. And, and again, my dad wouldn't need a, a lot. Uh, and so he's able to arrange a deal to trade the Riesling grapes for uh, what would be a, a small tank of Chardonnay wine, 
we didn't have a tank up here either or the cooling capacity. So they did it, Charles Krogan. So that first, the 65 Blanc de Blanc was actually made in a, a this 500-gallon tank down at Charles Krug Winery. And uh, my dad would like to tell the story of how he arranged for that deal, the trade of the Reason Grapes, the Chardonnay wine. And Robert said, Jack, you're, you're, you're crazier than I am, you know, to want to get into this sparkling wine business. But I tell you what, if you succeed, we'll all succeed. There and, you go. Yeah. and, and he true. meant it, right? He meant it. And, and, and I really feel, you know, that was when I watched my parents, you know, as the five-year-old kid, the 10-year-old kid, the 15, 20-year-old kid, whatever, um, their best friends they were all these guys and gals that they they worked with here in, in Napa. Those are the people that they uh, they wanted to spend their time with. That those are the people that they really in, enjoyed, and the, and they were all part of this team working to build, uh, you know, an, an industry where where there kind of had been one right before prohibition, but it but it needed some work right in in the in the 60s and 70s to 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 get going. It well, always needs work, but well, that, was, that was that was cool. It was, it's very cool. And that's, that's how it, you know, that's how we, I think as a industry, local, locally, California and Napa and Sonoma and other great areas have gotten on the world stage because we all helped each other out. And, um, I was thinking about, as you were talking about your, your dad doing sparkling wine, kind of, you know, the old world way, the real way. And do you think he was aware that, because, you know, so he, you guys were the first, but a lot of people followed. I mean, there are a lot of sparkling wine producers in California, and don't you th you think do you think he kind of started it? Well, definitely. I mean, there there Hans Cornell was here, Corbell was here uh, before my parents would start, but not doing the Chardonnay and the right. Pinot or like the guys in Champagne. So there there was a little bottle fermented sparkling wine, but like uh, you know, it it the 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 varietal wasn't um, that important yet. Uh, while there was more Riesling grown than anything else in Napa, uh, there was more Chablis made, right? <laughs> so I, I know that doesn't make sense to everybody, but that, that was the world that we lived in, right? Chablis right. was white wine. Right. That's it. Right. And Burgundy was red wine. And, and it just so happened that we just, we had a lot of Riesling planted. And so that would go into the white wine. Right. And then, um, yeah, they, they, there were there were there were people that were were starting to to go for for more specificity, and ultimately, then it was like, no, it's not only Cabernet, but it's Cabernet from this one vineyard. Right, <laughs> that's worth bottling. Um, and 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 uh, you know, obviously, vintage played a role. There was a time when vintage wasn't important, uh, but for my parents with their sparkling wines. Uh, from the outset, it was vintage dated sparkling wine. They didn't want to just make sparkling wine. Uh, a, a a more generic brute, right? They wanted to make a vintage dated sparkling wine. And so, uh, well, not everybody has jumped onto that bandwagon. It wasn't that far into the future from their, their launch, 65, uh, that they would get the knock on the door from the, the folks at uh, uh, Moet Hennessy, right? Or I guess it w probably was more formally at that moment, uh, Moet Chandon. And they... Mm -hmm. Um, they were interested in, you know, kind of bailing my parents out and buying the winery <laughs> and, uh, let's go. Um, Nixon had gone to China, right? And there was the, the historic toast of peace in 72 and, and France were Blanc Blanc had been served and there was, there was a moment and, and, um, 
So I, I just remember my parents. I mean, it's an early memory for me. I was in six at the time, but you know, wow, these guys from like Moet, they 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 were they were here. They wanted to buy the place. Well, they should come. They should come here <laughs> to Napa, and they should make sparkling wine too, right? right. And right. they did. I mean, seventy three, boom, very next year, Chandon. Chandon, uh, Domaine starts, Chandon, right? Domaine uh, Chandon yeah. starts. And then beyond that, you have the you know, other French would come, Rotor and Mum and, and Tadger, et cetera, uh, still here. So we have uh, we have a, uh, a pretty significant uh, group of French champagne producers making traditional method bottle fermented sparkling wine, you know, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, et cetera, here in, uh, in California as well. And then there are others beyond that, that, that uh, there are some uh, French or Spanish producers, Freshnet would come starting Gloria Ferrer. It hasn't always been easy, I'll tell you. You know, it really hasn't. It, it does feel like the last ten-ish uh, years have been the best. Uh, more, more demand, more demand for for what it is that I think collectively we're doing in this sparkling category. But I know that like none of this, any success that we might be having today, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't have been possible had not the you know. And obviously, in my case, my parents they, uh, jumped into this they, thing. And they, they did said, it. Yeah, we, they started. We're the going to make it. Yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. Uh, the '90s were pretty tough. I think that was a, a moment when, and both my parents were alive at the time. You know, the, the uh, a number of the French producers had come to California. Um, you know, we're we're trying to push the, the the price up and make it more premium and vintage date and like let, let's let's compete directly with French Champagne and there there was a moment when the demand was picking up through the mid '80s and then and then it softened for the category and unfortunately it softened for the category at the time that more more product was being produced um, not everybody was doing it you know but but enough of, of us were that uh it, it was it was tough it through was the tough. 90s yeah we were saved uh momentarily by the the whole millennium uh moment <laughs> yeah, seriously last last uh, last champagne and sparkling wine sold at that that uh, year too up to that point that was by far the best year that we ever had <laughs> yeah. and it was a good year like we had a good year we actually <laughs> made a little bit of money we had we had never we'd never even touched it before that Not, nothing like that and um, I will tell you that it was two years after my dad had passed away. And, you know, some people around uh, were not as confident, I uh, will say, as, as my mom um, in the abilities of the next generation. And they probably had good reason. <laughs> they probably had good reason to maybe be a little suspicious. Um, and so, you know, your dad passed away in 98 and, and things that, you know, we'd kind of just had a relatively tough stretch in there that, that didn't help. Yeah. And, um, the next thing you know, we have our best year ever. Right. So I think the, uh, the planets were lining up to give us, uh, the, the millennium year because it became a really good year to sell sparkling wine. Good, good. Well, you know, jumping back to the your first few years here, your dad got involved in something here locally in Napa Valley, which we really haven't talked much about on on the podcast. It comes up once mm-hmm. in a while, and that's that's what we call locally here. We call the Ag Preserve, and this was mm-hmm. this was a really big deal. And this was in the late '60s. You were probably a two or three year old little boy, so you don't remember any of this. And this before I got out here, but your dad was a, a big proponent of it, and one of the major driving forces and the result of the Ag Preserve, which I'd like you to explain to us, which if you don't mind, is it mm-hmm. really helped keep this valley 
green and in vines, especially at the time when the wine business wasn't necessarily that successful to keep it that way. And uh, so a few folks like your dad made this thing happen, and it's helped keep Napa Valley what it is today as far as the beauty and the focus on agriculture. But can you give us a quickie on the Ag Preserve? I think folks would like to hear that. Yeah, no, thanks uh, for asking. I and I think it's just one of those key building blocks in the in the, the you know the story of of Napa that that is uh, not particularly understood or you know it's it's you know we we just kind of take it for granted, right? That 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 the land is still here, but as a backdrop for my parents, uh, you know, growing up in in Los Angeles County they saw a tremendous change right? <laughs> la county in the year that my dad was born um number one ag county in the state of california uh you don't think of los angeles county for its agriculture and, and nor have you know generations right it, it, it changed that fast but for a moment that's what you had there uh orange county named after an orange i mean it, it, right. it is it is what it is uh my dad would go to college in the 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 late 40s at stanford right so he's down there near near santa clara valley and at that time the santa clara valley was uh was the number one you know ag agricultural you know county in in the you know in the bay area um and very productive, successful. Obviously, things have changed there as well, and and would change pretty quickly through the, the fifties and sixties. Um, and so, as my parents would come to Napa with this idea of the, hey, we're going to do this bottle fermented sparkling wine, and it's going to be awesome. Um, how could they be sure that there would still be vineyards here in twenty, thirty, forty years without? something to protect them because clearly what was happening in some of these other areas was that those 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 lands were 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 just uh they were getting paved over and so uh there were others in this community that were similarly concerned not everybody agreed uh but this concept of a agricultural preserve was established and so this is a zoning that is attached to uh, much of the land today between the city of Napa and the city of Calistoga, where you see the, you know, the vineyards, you know, between Napa and Yachtville or, and, and then the vineyards between Yachtville and St. Helena. Similarly, the vineyards uh, between uh, St. Helena and Calistoga and just north Calistoga, those lands are all in this agricultural preserve zone. Uh, minimum parcel size today, 40 acres. You can't subdivide unless it was subdivided beforehand into less than 40 acre parcels. That's a pretty good size parcel. You can have only one home per 40 acres. You can't do uh, commercial or industrial activity on those lands. And so on one hand, it has given us this opportunity to preserve the land for, for the purpose of agriculture. It, it calls the, the, the highest and best use of the land to be for agriculture. And, and then on the other hand, that, that did limit the opportunity for people to develop the land however they might want to done that. So it's limited the private property rights of all these individuals that that have land in this agricultural zone. 
uh, but our community has embraced it. I think it's a testament to the camaraderie and you know, collective spirit that exists here to you know, grow grapes and, and make wine. And, and it takes that. If you go to Burgundy, if you go to Bordeaux, you know, if you go to Rioja, we'll say, you know, if, if you go to Tuscany, you're going to you're going to see a, a, a similar uh, you know, kind of collective spirit to work towards uh, creating a wine growing region. And so we're, we're lucky that, that, that our predecessors uh, planted those seeds for, for the industry that, that obviously have allow us to continue to be here today. Exactly. Um, beyond the ag preserve, there's the ag watershed zoning, which is, you know, it's a much larger area. The, the preserve itself, I think is 33,000, you know, I'm rounding up a little bit mm-hmm. acres, uh, but you include all the ag watershed lands uh, that go into the hills and it's 160 acre minimum parcel sizes and and that's it's a lot of 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 napa county and no. so we've we've got what we got and and i i for one am am really thankful for it and and you know kind of proud of that that uh that legacy if you will well you should be he was he was a a, a great proponent of it and we all i think i think most of us here appreciate it and and realize how great it's been to have that but at the time it was incredibly controversial um because you're some people you know you're giving up some of your property rights to develop your own land and um it was it was a a heated debate and um but your your dad was one of the guys making sure you know it went the right way so so thank goodness for him so that was right when he got here and he's starting a winery and then you're growing up i'm assuming you went to my alma mater st helena high school I went to uh, schools, I went to the public school system through eighth grade, and okay. then I went away to a private high school, actually. Got I it. think my parents, <laughs> they, again, maybe it was part of that teenage boy thing, uh, yeah, I, both I, my I, brothers ended up at St. Helena High School, but I, uh, I went to a boarding school in Carpinteria, California, okay. so I had this, this fairly early... Uh, unique experience that was, you know, in Santa Barbara County. Yeah. Uh, you know, closer to the ocean, and and um, it was good. I I really I went there all four years. Uh, sometimes I'm surprised I I, I was able to, <laughs> to make it all the way to the finish line, but hey, got there. <laughs> got, got there. That. Got a badge. Right. Got my diploma. You got went it. Went on to college, and and you know, life life continued. But it was uh, that was a good experience for me. Yeah. I've remained. Throughout that time, uh, close to you know all the the kids that I grew up with here, and and retained a lot of the ties that I started with, uh, going back to before I ran into you playing basketball, uh, you know, down at the high school. So tell me about college, post high school. Where so I went to a place called Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. Right. Uh, and so I you know again you know did another you know, private college, small college. Um, this was it's about as far away from napa as, as you, you can, can get. get in the united states but coastal again i i i like the idea of being on the coast my parents encouraged me to go to new england to go to college so we huh. did a college tour i saw uh, i probably saw a dozen colleges along with my brothers i think i was a freshman uh, in high school at the moment when they took us back to see some college. And so I liked the rural, I liked the, the main. And, and so I did study, um, history, uh, U.S. history. Uh, I actually, one smart thing that I did when I was there was I, I started up with Spanish language. So my minor was in Spanish. Oh, great. Uh, I did economics, but the Spanish became a, 
a pretty key piece for me. I ended up doing a semester in Spain, uh, later in Lima, Peru. And as it turns out, that's a good language to learn if you want to be in the wine business yep. here in, in yep. California. That was probably... <laughs> That was a good move, but I did I did do a, a, a internship with a congressman in D.C. I then worked for a land trust in San Francisco for two years. Back to the land preservation idea, I thought that was pretty cool, and, right. and so maybe somewhat inspired. I did uh, two years working for a, a nonprofit uh, entity called the Trust for Public Land that, that does uh, uh, real estate transactions to protect lands, and then. Gosh, that got me to my mid-20s, and, and I started thinking maybe the wine thing isn't such a bad idea. And um, so eventually went to UC Davis, did a master's degree in winemaking. And it's probably right in there that I would have ran into you. Yeah, uh, I was going to uh, ask you that because you grew up, you know, in the wine family. I'm, so there's wine on mm -hmm. the table every night, more or less, and uh, yep. unlike a lot of other folks. So yep. was the wine bug always there or not really, or did something happen, you know— in the your college years or 20s where you know the, the light bulb went off or is it or is it more of just an evolution i had this idea of doing the the conservation work and then the land preservation work and then um honestly early 90s it was tough to make a living doing that mm -hmm. um i um I started feeling a little bit uncomfortable uh, with the idea that uh, I might not actually be at the winery. Oh. Hmm. You know, I started thinking about it. And so there was a moment I, I honestly I had like my midlife crisis in my m early mid 20s. Just just not sure what the hell I wanted to do. Right. I mean, it's, <laughs> people start bugging normal, you when man. you're like 13. <laughs> they're like, what are you going to do? Right. I don't know. Uh, so I'm 23 and I still don't know for sure. Uh, 24 and then uh long conversations with dad and and mom they're so patient right they just said you know in well into my 20s you know i'm, I'm still sitting there at, uh, at the dinner table trying to figure it out and um so we came up with this idea that maybe i could be the wildlife biologist or research uh you know uh, uh scientist you know on on you know the preservation side of things or maybe just maybe i might get into winemaking okay okay <laughs> and so we don't have to decide yet but we do need to start doing biology and chemistry and physics either way we're going right right and so <laughs> it was it was kind of like okay okay so i honestly at that point i came home i went to uh santa rosa jc uh this you know here's a guy who's already got his bachelor's degree and you know from a fine college and and seemingly everything uh going for him but hey you know i swallow my pride i'm gonna go to the jc and i'm gonna take um biology and, and chemistry and physics and so i do like a year of these classes and it goes great goes yeah. great i'm you know right up there top of the class and uh it was in that time granted i was home too um you know heck i i'm gonna go to, i'm gonna be a winemaker you know I, th I think my friends helped convince me too they're like dude you got you got a great opportunity so yeah. I, I applied to davis and uh i ended up working at mum napa i did a a stint at uh, Remy Martin in Cognac. That was pretty cool. Uh, Moet Chandon, back to Moet in, in Champagne. That was pretty cool. A uh, place called Petaluma in Australia. So I did, like some winemakers might do, you know, the, the, the stylish, you know, uh, uh, internship type experiences. Um, so I did about four of those. And after that, whoosh, 
you know, I was done. I had my master's degree. I'd done my experiences. And I was 30. I was 30 when I came back to Shramsburg, 1996. Right. And, and uh, so how'd that go with your folks? I'm, I'm assuming they were excited and happy and absolutely (laughs) absolutely they loved it they were i mean i think that they were my biggest cheerleaders i I, uh they're not here i still feel like they're cheering uh really my wife she's pretty good too and my kids yeah Yeah, they they were so excited for and in the end i was the one i've got two brothers and i was the one who said all right man i'll do it i'll do it and, yeah. and, and not a minute too soon, because as I said earlier, my dad would pass away in 98. That wasn't part of the plan. Oh, was, that was, was not quick. part of the plan, right? It never is. And then, um, and I was 32. So, Oof. you know, so a little right, bit of a... Right. Yep. Yeah. And then, and then um, with mom, we, we would move on and the, the business and, and, uh, you know that for that one millennium year was good. The the, the next couple of years actually was, were, were not. <laughs> the nine eleven thing was every bit as bad yeah. for business for us as the millennium thing was good. And uh, but we stood our ground, and and then from there it just the thing seems to have rolled in in a lot of positive ways. And, you know, built on you know the the earlier uh, efforts, and uh, yeah, we're I'm thankful. No, it's great, and and right about that time, early two thousands, I think I remember. I remember this was it was big news to me. It was like Schramsberg's planting Cabernet. They're going to make a cab. I, I was like, what? Come on, no, they're sparkling. I don't want any more competition. <laughs> you, what are you doing? So, what was uh, what was the thinking behind Cabernet? The Cabernet, um, you know, the the genesis of that, frankly, you know, the first discussions probably go back to the late eighties. And I really credit our Schramsberg winemaking team at the time. Uh, There's a guy named Alan Tencher, Dan Goldfield. I don't know if you've crossed their paths, mm-hmm. but we we started to do some Carneros fruit, right, in right. the in the mid '80s. All right, and they, so we're a little further south in the valley, close to the bay. Ah, wow, it's a little later the uh, harvest season down here. This, this fruit actually it has slightly riper flavor, even at the same sugar level. The acidity's not notably higher that's nice we don't have to add acid to this stuff right huh. um and so as we kept pressing forward uh we we were we were starting to realize you know 92 we were up in the anderson valley trying a little bit of the fruit up there for the sparkling we weren't the first right uh, pretty right. good right. really i think the winemakers were the first ones to say we should do something else with the 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 vineyard property that we have here on diamond mountain and and it wasn't my parents' initial vision, for sure. Uh, but I think they they eventually would come around to realize that the market might not get it, but we're, we're seeing the results here inside the winery that are, that are, are better Chardonnay and Pinot results are, are not the ones coming off of the home property. And so we would then uh, start to explore. Dad said, well, we're not just going to... Uh, you know, roll over here. You guys have got to do some experimentation. So we have, we've had as many as I think 11 different red table wine varieties planted on this property. Um, for me, fun in 96, we started to make the, the Cabernet Franc and the Merlot and the, uh, the Malbec. Obviously there's Pinot Noir, there's Pinot Meunier. We had, uh, Zinfandel, we had Syrah, we had Cabernet Sauvignon. We were looking at these these different varietals and, and making very small batches of them to try to figure out, you know, which was going to emerge as the leader. 
and, and obviously not surprisingly by the time we we pushed a little further uh cabernet seemed to to emerge as like the best choice and so maybe counterintuitive to what other people would be thinking because we were the sparkling wine guys uh it made you know all too much sense to 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 plant cabernet here and so we would produce our first estate cabernet uh state dine mountain cabernet in 2001 with my mom we launched the the, the brand would sell that wine in 2004 uh we call it the j davies cabernet named after my dad jack so we have the j shram named after jacob tram here the j davies named after jack davies and uh, away we've gone. Yeah, we, we've got a winery in St. Helena. We, we do Pinot Noir as well. We do a little range of Cabernets, a little range of Pinot Noirs. And, and it's, uh, it's been exciting. You know, it's, a 20, it's crazy. That first replanting was 28 years ago. Wow. Well, you, what you guys did was parallel to a lot of us around here. As we got into it, we realized, you know, um, certain grapes do better in certain areas of the valley and not as well as other places. So it comes right down to, you know, plant the right grape in the right place. And, uh, you know, I remember we, we had originally had 10 acres of Chardonnay here on our home ranch here at, uh, at the, where the winery is in Stag's Leap. And it was okay, but it's a lot better Cabernet than, than, land, than Chardonnay land. So, um, and that's just been evolution for all of us, plant the right grape in the right place. So, that's nice. And you mentioned 2004. Um, I think that's when you guys got, you and Monique got married. Is that right? 2004, we we got married. Uh, 2004 get? ended up being also the year that our family hosted the, we were like the host family of the auction Napa Valley. Oh, that's right. Or Napa that's Valley right. Wine Auction. How'd you guys meet? Uh, so that, Monique that you. also what's, what's happened. So Monique, uh, she's great. Uh, she she also grew up in napa valley uh, a few years younger than me uh, she, i grew up more saint helena you know and and she was more napa um the uh so we didn't cross paths until uh, the the 90s and then we were you know we both just kind of uh uh looking <laughs> looking for love i don't know looking for somebody <laughs> at about the same time in 2002 and we met, we, uh, you know, kind of uh, connected, I guess, if you will, a little bit on a, on a Nap Valley Vintner tour, uh, which I'm sure you've done a few of those. Mm-hmm. I've probably done one or two of them with you, but you, yeah. where you travel around. And, and uh, this one was uh, Oklahoma and, and Texas and, um, you know, great, great. You know, fun you know as you get get the, the you know the gang from around the valley together to go out and promote what we do and so she was she had worked at joseph phelps for quite a few years 13 years in total and then it was during that time that uh you know we we started to uh date one another and uh, a couple years later um we got married and started a family and you know, our first son was born in 2005 so you guys you've got four boys i think that's right and you know the two of you are doing kind of what your parents did. You're balancing family, work at the winery, traveling. What's it What's it like? Is it a flash to your what your folks did? Um, what are the joys? What are the challenges? How do you guys, how do you do it? Um, put one foot in front of the other. <laughs> uh, uh, that's a corny one that probably came from my dad, I would imagine. You know, like, how do you do it, dad? Uh, yeah, you just put one foot in front of the other and, and keep, (laughs) keep going forward. Um, but I think you have to have plans, you know, you have to have a, 
some kind of a vision for where you're wanting to go. I think some level of flexibility is also important, you know, where, where you might realize, oh, that wasn't such a good idea. Okay. We, that's okay. We can, we, we can allow ourselves to, to, to make some mistakes and then, and then fix them. Right. And right. honestly, sometimes the, the, you know, the, the fix might, might lead to another opportunity that would be a positive. We try to, uh, enjoy life, uh, despite the fact that, you know, we're on all the time and we live right here at the winery. The, the winery lives right here with us. It's 24 seven, uh, there's not a whole lot of time where you're not, you're not thinking about the business and, and the, and the future and, and the past or what have you. I just feel lucky. I mean, I, 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 how many of us get to work so hard at something just means so much to us, right? Uh, you know, the product that we make is something that we really can enjoy that other people can really, really enjoy. It, it means something to people, you know, they, 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 they've, they've celebrated, you know, uh, great moments of their life with this, this darn product that, you know, we, we pour our hearts into making it's good. Like that, that's that, that, that'll lift you for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, so you just try not to let, uh, the fact that you seem to be so focused and energized, uh, you know, all the time kind of overwhelm and it, it is hard to step away because you're here all the time, right? But where are we? Ah, we happen to be living up on this hill, <laughs> <laughs> and at night, you know, you hear coyotes, and you know, you might see the odd deer run around. Uh, our little rabbits or foxes. You know, we've got bird feeders, and you know, all kinds of you know, wild birds come uh, buzzing around the house. Uh, we've got a pond. The kids can you know fly off the rope swing and. Um, you know, we, 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 we live well. I, I, I mean, of, of all the places that I, I could possibly live, I'd say this has got to be pretty, pretty good. So I, I think on, I realized all of those for me, like back to the mid twenties, early 20, that, that moment where I was trying to figure out what I want to do. Um, I kind of crossed that a lot of bridges all at once. Mm, <laughs> yeah, you did. This is good as it's, this is as good as it's going to get. And I, and now I've just been trying to live every minute and and hopefully um you know it lasts for a good long time you know we sometimes we forget about you're so wrapped up in something in you know in the office but you know just like you i can walk there's a door 10 feet away i walk out and go another 20 feet and i'm in the middle of a cabernet hillside cabernet vineyard take a nice little walk (laughs) it's like if that doesn't calm you down nothing else will so and pretty soon you'll be able to go out there and taste those grapes right yeah yeah they're getting yeah i'm looking for they're not not right now little tart little tart i don't want them to 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 change color quite yet i'm happy for that that. i know because it always seems like oh it's two weeks away no you got you got some time you got some time um we got some time well, thanks, Matt. Tell me about your current lineup, Schramsberg and Jay Davies. So what, what are you guys offering now? What, what different flavors? Yeah, so I, I know that we've, um, you know, we've kind of crossed the line. I can hear Dad saying that you, know, you don't want to get distracted and do too many different offerings, right? It's, uh, that, sounds like some, <laughs> my, that sounds like my dad. Those, those two guys were a lot alike, I think we have yeah about 30 um and and why would we ever have so many part of what we've done i feel that that's been successful for our particular winery is we've developed uh uh in developing a great 
consumer fan base um we have we've been able to to kind of help build that by by virtue of having a wine club so wine club where where people take their quarterly shipments and and so you know years in advance as you well understand you know making wine making premium sparkling wine we sell some of these wines that are 10 years old. We're releasing later this year a 2004. Oh, wow. 18-year-old sparkling wine. Let's go, right? That's and, great. And some of our fans, they can't get enough. They love it. I can't get enough. So, you know, I, I love it too. But we, as we've developed that fan base and as we want to keep that club audience uh, engaged and excited, we have to continue to present them with, you know, kind of cool new iterations of, of, of these, of this range of brute styles that we make. And so we have, uh, we have about 15 different sparkling wines that that we produce. You have to have 10 to do a a wine club. Okay. Okay. To cover, to cover all the shipments for the year, you need 10. I got Uh, it. I, I can't just give blah, blah, blah you know, 10 bottles at a time and, and call it good. Uh, well, I didn't think good. So we, we make this cool range, rosés, Blanc Blancs, Blanc Noirs, you know, those are the kind of the three iterations of, of sparkling that we do. But inside of that, there are late discord versions, extra brute versions on those themes, specific vineyard versions. Pretty cool. Wow. Uh, but meanwhile, on the Cabernet and Pinot Noir side, the Davies side, that's where we get up to 30. We've got another 15 or so uh, specific vineyard pinots, specific vineyard cabernets, and and some iterations along those themes that we're also uh, producing and and uh, that we've developed. We talked about the the first one in that set was our JDB Estate Diamond Cabernet, so that was a 2001 vintage. So here we are, uh, uh, stepping up to vintage number 22 yeah. of of commercial red wine production and. Um, uh, so those are not as widely available in terms of you know c- uh, c- commercial availability through the stores and restaurants. The transfer portfolio, or some 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 of the items in that portfolio, really have great distribution. We really appreciate the the wholesale partners. There's a company called Wilson Daniels we've worked with for a lot of years to 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 build a national network, and so you, we've kind of done it on the, the those two sides. With the Reds, a little more DTC, but we're working on the the wholesale side as well and. It's exciting. I feel like there's a really bright future. I always, always felt that. I guess I always feel oh, that I th- way. I think, I think you're right. I, I, I see it too. So that's fantastic. What a great lineup. Um, so if folks want to get a hold of them, what's, your, what's the best way? I'm, I'm assuming you guys have a good Well, website. simply you could go to the shramsberg.com okay. you know, website, right? So S-C-H-R-A-M-S-B-E-R-G. Uh, that's the name of the, you know, the, the, there's a, there's a Davies site as well. D-A-V-I-E-S. Um, uh, a, a portion of the range is, is available throughout the, you know, the, the restaurants in the country throughout, you know, many restaurants in the country and, uh, and stores as well. Um, we hit 50 States, you know, not too much in some of the smaller ones. Uh, and we hit probably about 30 countries, but again, uh, with more limited, you know, uh, on a much more limited basis overseas. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're excited to keep trying to, to build it and to I- extend it. Good. Good news. Good news. Great story. Great family story. A real key part of the kind of the re-energization, re-ener- is that a word, uh, of the Napa Valley <laughs> in, this, in this modern era, which is now 40 or 50 years old. But, um 
Thanks so much for your time. You, you take care. Say hi to everybody. Hey, will do. Best to you, Doug, and your family. Bye-bye. Right, take care. Bye-bye. I knew going into this that Hugh would have a lot of great stories, and he did not disappoint. The Schramsberg name is one of the oldest here in the Napa Valley, and Hugh and his family have done a great job of taking that legacy and bringing it into the future. Their wines are well worth seeking out, so I hope you'll do yourself a favor and track them down. If you enjoy these podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review them on your favorite podcast platform. This helps other people find the podcast. And if you have any thoughts or ideas you'd like to share with us, please do at podcast at schafervineyards.com. Thanks for joining us here today. We'll see you next time.